The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. From Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son and our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. So I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, if you're new to this place, my name is Jared Huffman. I'm on staff here with several others at Restoration Southside, and we really do love to know our people. So if you will come by and say hey and introduce yourself, it may take me a week or two, but we'll get your name down because we really want you to know us and we want to know you. And so uh, essentially we want this place to be safe for you. We know that uh, out there you're battling with sin because I am too. And out there you're battling with suffering and discouragement because I am too. And we want this to be a place where despite the difficulties you face outside this room, you know that you can come here and be reminded that you're loved and you're safe and that you're not alone. And so if this is your first time, we want you to know that, that you're not alone out there. And we would love for you to make this your home. We start a new sermon series today in Titus. The reason that Titus is such an important book for us is because, as they mentioned last time, uh, Titus is a book from a church planter to a church planter. Paul is explaining to a younger son in the faith what it should look like when Titus gets this church plant going. And so... We who are only two years old need the same advice. We need to see what it looks like, what what it means that Paul puts the main building blocks out and says, this is what a church plant is going to be about. Now, I should also tell you that at one point in Titus's life, the Judaizers wanted to come after him to get him circumcised as an adult. And Paul didn't let it happen. And so you can imagine that Titus listens to every word that Paul says, and we should too. Titus is going to talk to us about what godliness looks like in our church and in our home and in our world. He focuses us on what a church plant should look like. So let's ask God to bless our study of his word and focus us this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for those that lead us in singing and for those that uh, work so diligently with the sound. I pray, God, that you'll sustain this mic and our speakers. I pray that you would use these few moments to orient this church and what it means to be a church plant. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Some of you may know that I have three-year-old twins. The last three years have been chaos. 
In fact, our three-year-old twins, it's, we've gone through like the first six months you barely remember because you're so sleep deprived and crazy. And then you kind of have some sweet moments as you get a little bit more sleep and then, then it gets a little chaotic the more they can move around. Now we've entered into a new stage where they're three, year old, three years old and it's absolutely insane. Let me tell you two quick stories, and then I'll tell you why I'm going to tell you those stories. First of all, in their bedroom at night at 3 o'clock in the morning, sometimes they will get out of bed, and they will go over to the light switch, and they will turn on the light switch and so that they can, at 3 o'clock in the morning, start playing with their Legos. To conquer them in this effort, I have now shut off their light switch at the breaker box. So I feel like I've outdone them. But now, in the pitch black, after they've tried the light switch, they go over to a dresser in the dark, take suspenders that we had for some cute wedding years ago out of the dresser drawer and walk over to the lock, which is turned around backwards, by the way, so that they're locked in safe. Please don't tell anyone. And they will use the suspenders to unlock the door and get out at 3 o'clock in the morning. I say, Connor, how did you do that? And he said, I pick a lock. Why does my three-year-old know the phrase, pick a lock? <laughs> Even scarier than that. The other day, this is a true story, every word of it. I walked in after quiet time. Quiet time is what parents hold on to once kids stop taking naps, but they still just need a little time to themselves. You hold on to quiet time, and so you know they're playing in there, but they can't come out. And so after quiet time, I go to let them out. And if you have kids, when you let kids out of quiet time, it's like releasing hounds. They just go. And I surveil the damage of what they've done over the last several minutes to their room. And as I'm looking at this totally messy room, it occurs to me we're missing a mattress. And I glance over. Now we're on the second floor. The twins are on the second story of our house. And I glance over and the window is cracked just this much. And they have unlocked the window, unchild locked the window, pushed the window open and together thrown one of their mattresses out into the backyard as if they're people from Animal House. <laughs> then one of them changed the other's dirty diaper you can imagine the precision with which that was done. And to hide the evidence, they threw the diaper and all the wipes out the back window, second floor. And then because they liked what it felt like to throw things out the window, they grabbed all their blocks and dumped them one by one out the window. Friends, we need help. It's, get, it's getting real. I have now screwed with a drill, their windows shut, which is illegal to do, I believe, because we have to keep them safe. We have to be vigilant just to keep them alive. The reason that I tell you that is Paul is standing before a young church planter and a young church plant, and he's saying, you have to be vigilant. You have to focus. You have to think about it. You have to talk about it. You have to plan for it. You have to work towards it. You can't for one second 
get distracted, you have to be vigilant. So the big question is, is for us, we have to be vigilant to keep the kids alive. For Paul, what does he want the church to be vigilant about? The thing that they have to work and pray and plan and move towards, what do they have to be vigilant about? And then for a lot of us as the church, we would say, uh, worship? They have to be vigilant to get together on Sunday mornings and worship? No, they have to be vigilant about spiritual growth where you, know, you try and fight those bad sins as much as you possibly can. You try and learn as much as you can about the Bible. You try and do your devotions. You've got to be vigilant about that. Paul says no. That is not what the church is called to be vigilant about first and foremost. What the church plant has to be vigilant about is the mission. The mission. I know that sounds kind of common maybe. But what that means is that it's been said before, the church is the only organization in the world who exists for the benefits of the non-members. That means the reason that you're here are for the sake of the people who are not here yet. That's what church is about. Not a great singing voice, not good programs, not a good preaching necessarily. The, the church is about mission. And we're going to look at that in Titus over and over again. The church is about mission. And we have to be vigilant. What is so cool is that the church is supposed to be missional all of the time. As you become an established church, there are so many other distractions so many other things to work on and worry about that it's hard to keep mission focused. But in a church plant, it's the main thing. Not Sunday school or children's ministry. The main thing is that we exist for the sake of the people who are not yet here. So let's look at how Paul introduces himself this morning. Glance with me down in the text. It says this. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. First of all, that word he uses there is slave. If you can take a second and zoom back out from our, our current cultural context of what slave means... Paul is referencing this Old Testament context of what slavery meant to the Hebrews in Israel. Listen to this. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and you serve six years in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Send them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why I give you this command today. Listen to this. This is what I want you to get about Paul. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, 
Then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door, and he will become a servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. So this text, two places in the Old Testament that says, if your slave has served you faithfully for six years, and you say you've done what you're supposed to do, go, take wine, take grain, take some of our gold, go. And the, and the servant says to you, I love you. Why would I go anywhere? I want to be with you. The master is supposed to take the slave to the door and pop a hole in his ear like an earring. And that earring basically says, I am voluntarily yours forevermore. That's what Paul means when he says a bondservant or a slave. That he loves God so much that he doesn't want to go anywhere else. He doesn't want to have any other purposes. He wants to be with God. I used this same passage when I was 17 years old to talk my parents into letting me get an earring. I was telling them I took these verses so seriously and I wanted to be so godly, a God's slave forevermore, so I got an earring. And it meant so much to me. Until three years later when Erin said she didn't like my earring and it came out immediately. But this is the song, Pierce my ear, O Lord. Take me to this door this day, and I will serve no other God. Oh, Lord, I'm here to stay. Paul considered himself a slave and one who was voluntarily giving himself his freedom, giving it to his master because he didn't want to be anywhere else. What Paul shows to us is humility. He doesn't consider himself this hero of the faith. In fact, by the end of his life, he'll say, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul demonstrates humility because he knows under any other circumstances, the people far out there, that could be him. He was a Christian killer. So when he thinks about the people who are far out there, he realizes it could have been him, and so he thinks of himself humbly. Do we as a church do that? Isn't it so tempting for us to think we go to church, we sometimes read our Bible, yeah, we know we're not great, but we are certainly better than what is going on out there. We will never be a missional church if we think like that, with a lack of humility. If we think, well, at least we're not as bad as out there. Paul realizes on any other day it could have been him out there, but God intervened. And we as a church plant have to think of the unbelievers not yet in this room as that could have been us on any other given day and circumstance. You're not better as a person just because you know Jesus. In fact, you knowing Jesus knows that you know that you're no better than anyone else. Does humility reign in this room at our church plant? And compassion. Paul can't rest until other people know Jesus. Do you remember Paul in the New Testament moving around from place to place, starting church plants, going back, checking on them, sending others to check on them, writing letters. Paul cannot rest. Why? Because he has compassion for those who don't yet know. 
For those who are far off, Paul can't rest until others know Christ. Do we have compassion? Compassion. That means when you see the people in your neighborhood and when you see the people at brunch and when you see the people at CrossFit and at yoga and when you see the people at work and you realize they either aren't believers or are but have sort of given up and checked out, does that make you sad for them? So often it's easy to see them and be like, oh, you're just wasting your lives. You just don't know it won't all make you happy. And instead of causing us to be compassionate towards those who are not yet here, it fills us with judgment, thinking we know and so we're better. And guess exactly who that sounds like in the New Testament? The Pharisees. We know and so we're better. And you know Jesus hammers the Pharisees and draws near to the irreligious all the time. If we don't care about them, who will? We demonstrate humility and we demonstrate compassion. Do we care? And then Paul certainly shows courage. Courage. Paul puts a church plant in Crete. That's what this book is going to be about. Cretans are known for being liars. In fact, they're going to say the poem about the Cretans in a few verses here. Paul shows courage and goes into territory that's dangerous, territory that's not going to be welcomed. And he does it because he wants everyone to know, do we show courage? Do you show courage in your life? with the people you work with, the people you live near, the people in your family, and the people your friends. I'm not saying the kind of courage that goes in and confronting all the time. That's easy to do, and it'll be your last engagement with those people. I mean the kind of courage that sets up a church for the long haul to love and live alongside these people. Meaning we're not going anywhere. Because we are here for you. The church exists for the non-members. Paul shows humility and compassion and courage. And we as a church plant have to show humility, compassion, and courage. He's writing to Titus on how to plant a church. And why is he writing? Why? Did you see it in there? Paul, a servant of God... That's the slave part. The voluntary slave who doesn't want to leave his master but do all the things his master wants him to do. An apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the sent 13, was 12 and Judas kills himself. Matthias is named and then Paul is named. He is, exists to be sent. So he is a slave and he's sent. And why is he writing? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. He's saying, what I'm doing in writing you, what I'm doing in helping you plant this church is for the sake of those who believe and don't yet believe. That's what he's saying. His existence is for the sake of the faith of the elect. The ones that will come into the church, that are called into the church, that are drawn into the church. That's why Paul exists, is to rescue others. We have to remember we don't exist to have powerful worship. 
programs only. We don't exist to have powerful small groups only. We don't exist to have the best spiritual uh, disciplines where we can help you get rid of all of your bad habits. Not primarily. We exist primarily for the sake of the people who aren't yet here. And if you think that sounds just, I'm not sure that adds up. What did Jesus say as he, right before he ascended into heaven? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Our job is to be a disciple-making place, to rescue others. In Acts 18, they're thinking about leaving this city. And it says this. Tim Chester pointed me to this. It says this. God has many people in your city. He's saying the reason that they can't go yet is because God still has many people who are there. God has many people in your city. And what he's talking about is people that are not yet Christians. God has many people in Chattanooga that are not yet Christians. Who are these people? Friends, it's going to be a long, hard road, but it's important that we walk it. What's so difficult about some is that they've never heard. I've literally met people in the context of planting this church that they said they have never darkened the door of a church. And so imagine, I'm like, well, I'd love for you to come. We sit in these rows and we all stand up and sing in one direction. We'd love to have you. They're like, what? We have to love them in such a way, in such a compelling way, that they would be interested in being rescued. So we have to focus on rescue for the sake of those who don't yet know. I had a friend go and do prison ministry, and he came and shared the gospel with an inmate who was incarcerated and he said it was sort of methodical and he had it memorized and when you get to the end he sort of looked down because it was too awkward to just stare at this prisoner right in the eye as he was telling him that he was a sinner and he needed God's grace and that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose from the dead and now that this guy can have new life and he finally finishes the end and kind of glances up at the guy and the guy is just the prisoner is just shaking his head just shaking his head and he's like oh no and the prisoner said, that can't be true. That can't be true. The gospel. He goes, because if that were true, Christians would crawl on their hands and knees through fields of broken glass just to tell other people about it. And I've never heard that before. Can you imagine? Get in the psyche of one of your friends who's far off, who doesn't yet know, who hasn't yet been brought in, and that there is a God who has loved them with an unconditional and unmatchless love and has chased them through time and has sent his son to come and pay for all of the bad stuff they did and all of the good stuff they never got to. And that he gave them his perfect record so that God would smile every time they would see him. And then not only that, he gave them the Holy Spirit to sustain them. And not only that, that he's coming back for them and for your friend to think you knew all this? You knew this? This was yours? 
We have to be about the rescuing of those that don't yet know. But it's not just rescuing. It's not just that we only worry about the rescue of others. It's also the restoration. Did you see it in there? It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect, all those who are in the church and yet not in the church, and their knowledge of the truth. By the truth there, he's referencing the gospel. And their knowledge of the truth of the gospel. So we help in this grand rescue effort. And as there are those being rescued, we all grow in the knowledge of the gospel. The knowledge of the gospel. That you don't just need the gospel to start and then you move on to other things, but that the gospel, as one has said, it's not just the ABCs of the Christian faith. The beginning, it's the A through Z. That you go back to the gospel over and over again. And that's why those who do know Christ and those who don't yet know Christ have so much in common is because they need to hear the same thing. The gospel over and over again for those who have never heard it or heard it and walked away and for those who come every week full of sin and suffering and discouragement and be reminded that as we sang together, He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. What he's saying is, is that when you immerse yourself in the truth, the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, it will do two things for you. It will bring you godliness and hope. Look with me in the, in the picture, in the verse again, please. It says this. In their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, or another translation says, in the knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. When you immerse yourself in the gospel for the first time or for the millionth time, it will lead you to a life of godliness and a life of hope. One pastor said, we think of godliness as broccoli in the sky. Like we know it's good for us, but man, nobody wants it. Why would we be godly if we think of it as this bummer life? What he's saying is, is that It's your godly life, your loving life, your patient and gentle life, your self-controlled life. It's that which brings glory to Jesus, good to others, and it helps advertise what it's like to be changed by Jesus. That's right, advertise. Chris Wright says it this way, If our mission is to share good news, we need to be good news. If we preach transformation, we need to show some sort of evidence of what transformation looks like. If I tell you to be holy because you really should be, you're going to be like, okay, here it is. But if I tell you to be holy, to be godly, because it's a part of the transformation of all things, and those who are far off will be brought near to peer over and see, what it, why are these people loving each other like this? Why are there people giving their own money away to other sources? Why are these people restoring cities, taking care of the poor? Why are they doing this? 
is so that those can be brought in. Godliness is our opportunity to show the world what God can do. Not broccoli in the sky. We revel in the gospel so that we'll grow in godliness and we'll grow in hope. We'll grow in hope. Here he says it in the text. The truth which leads to godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So here we have God being timeless. He says, when you experience the gospel, the gospel will begin to transform your life in godliness, and it will fill you with hope. Why? Because he knows you need hope. He knows Titus, as he moves into Crete, is going to need hope. He knows as they sin and as they suffer, he's going to need to bring them hope. And he's saying, the reason that you can count on the fact that God will move towards those who don't yet know and God will care for those who he already does know is because God said it from the beginning of time. That this was always his plan to have the church be on mission not to hoard the gospel for themselves, but instead to go and spread it everywhere they can possibly go. That they would be a blessing to the nations. And instead, we have taken it for ourselves and then looked out at the nations and our neighbors and our coworkers and said, I can't believe you don't have this. When it was meant to be given to them for free. And he says, I promise this from eternity past and Believe me, and you get an eternity future. And you can count on it because God never lies. He says, trust me, trust me. So we're about to be, we're supposed to be humble and compassionate and courageous. We're supposed to be about the rescuing of those who don't yet know. And all of us are supposed to be about having our lives restored, bringing godliness and bringing hope for now. And what is the response? Meaning if you have these things, you've been rescued and restored, what next? What should Titus do in this unholy city? It says at this, and at the proper time, which manifested in his word through preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The way that God brings those who don't yet know him into the church is through preaching. That's right. Sermons from pastors is how God brings people into the church, partly. And so for $19.99, if you will just sign up on my... I'm just kidding, guys. Yes, the preached word is important. It's important. It's what reminds the church and builds them up so that they can go and be on mission. And so, yes, yes, bring your friends to the sermons. Who knows what could happen? But also bring the sermons to your friends. And I don't just mean link our website. I mean live out and love them through the sermons that you're hearing. The problem with the church is that we don't think God really cares for people outside the church. Let me say that again. The problem with the church is we don't really think God cares. Like, yeah, we should love them when we can. We should give them money when we can. We should encourage them when we can. But God's work is really here. And that thought that God doesn't care that much for people who aren't in the church is anathema 
It's evil. I've looked at all these passages over the last day and it just mowed me down of how much God cares for those. Listen from Romans and several other places. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? God says, I care about those who don't yet know. And you go tell them. How can they know unless we go tell them? The Lord said to Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for that great city of Nineveh? God cares about this evil, reckless city, Nineveh. God cares about the ones who haven't heard. They don't know because no one's preached to them. Ezekiel 33, as I say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live and turn back. Or how about 2 Peter 3? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It means God's not coming back yet because not enough people have been brought in. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Whose fault is it for those out there, those, in quotes, bad people out there, for not coming to repentance, for them wandering around in the dark? Friends, you don't need God to start caring about your unbelieving friends. He wants you to start caring about them. He already does. And they need it. So yes, we use the preached word, but we also use the sharing of faith. Meaning you are going to have access into people's lives that I will never get to. Most people lock up when they, when they find out what I do for a living. Like, hey, what do you do? And they're like, hey, I'm a minister. And they're like, okay, great. Hey, honey, we should go. But they'll linger with you. They'll listen to your stories and you'll listen to theirs. They'll take your love and grace and wisdom. They'll eat the food that you make them. They'll stand on the porches with you. Share the gospel. That's what he's called us to do. And friends, in COVID, when you used to ask people how they were doing, they'd be like, great, how are you? And they'd be like, great, awesome. This horrible thing has opened up this opportunity where you're like, literally the question has changed. It's not, how are you? It's like, you hanging in there? And somebody's like, yeah, we're surviving. There's an honesty now that we can all realize that we're a mess. I want to give you a quote and a story and then we'll end. So what do we have to be vigilant about? The mission. The church exists for the benefit of the non-members. Chris Wright says it this way. Mission is not ours. Mission is God's. The mission of God is the prior reality out of which flows any mission that we get involved in. Listen to this. It is not so much the case that God has a mission 
for his church. As if he has, oh, church, here I want to give you something. That God has a mission for his church. But that instead, God has a church for the sake of his mission. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. That's why he starts a new church plant with Titus. Is that the church, you have this terrible city with lots of sin. All these people who desperately need God, now go get them. The church was made for mission. One of my favorite preachers, this guy named Alex Watlington, and he uses this story, and it really applies to what we're talking about. He tells the story of Anthony Bourdain, a famous traveler and foodie. And for all his world travels, parts unknown star, Anthony Bourdain, who since passed, had never been to Waffle House until recently. It was a part of Charleston, South Carolina episode for the last season of his show. Bourdain was introduced to the golden-lit Southern culinary mecca by Chef Sean Brock, who said he used to love going to Waffle House as a kid because he liked watching the cooks make food in front of him. So there's this chef, and he wants to take Bourdain, who's a world traveler, and he cannot believe that he's not been to Waffle House. And this is Bourdain's recounting of Waffle House. Jim Gaffigan recounts it as, as if a truck stop gas station had a kitchen in it. But this is what Anthony Bourdain says about it. It is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. It's warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered all across the South to come inside a place for safety and nourishment. It never closes. It's always, always faithful. It's always there for you. Waffle House. <laughs> Friends, what if that was our reputation? That you could come to a place of safety and nourishment. That it never closes. It's always, always faithful, and it's always there for you. If your friends who don't know really knew what they had here, they'd jump in the boat, and you get the best job in the world to go tell them about what you have here. And that is what we're going to be vigilant about at Restoration Southside. Let's pray. Jesus, there are so many things that could distract us from our mission. Please don't let it. We want to be vigilant about the mission. 
that the reason that we exist is for those who are not yet here. God, I ask that you would make it so. Emblazon it into our DNA as a church plant that we will exist to always be there, a place of safety, a place who are for our neighbors and coworkers and family and friends. Help us to live in mission and on mission. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.